for all things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed. We'll help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show. Okay, uh, hello and welcome to the Early Careers Podcast with myself, Ollie Sidwell. And me, Jack Denton. Uh, so welcome. We have today uh, Alice Scott, Managing Director of Development Beyond Learning, and she is an expert in behavioural science. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Ollie. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for coming along. Yeah, welcome. And um, so how, how are you? I am very good, slightly recovering from a cold, but um, otherwise extremely excited to be here to chat to you guys about early career development. Excellent. It's winter for you, isn't it? Yeah, Your winter colds. Mm, yeah, it's true, actually. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about the onboarding process from the point of view of behavioural science. So perhaps we could start by defining the onboarding process, when that begins and when that sort of ends within within an organisation. Okay, fabulous. Um, So defining um, onboarding, onboarding is essentially um, helping to assimilate and integrate new employees um, within an organisation. Um, And in terms of the process, different organisations will view it differently. Um, At a very minimum, it might be simply helping a new employee to understand the processes and systems um, and basic skills that they need in order to thrive within an Mm -hmm. organisation. Through to some organisations take uh, onboarding um, to mean uh, a much more significant investment, both in kind of time um, and support and training. Um, and they could run onboarding um, for graduates, apprentices or school leavers lasting several weeks or months. Um, right. Some organisations actually probably evolve um, onboarding into something more akin to a, a, a longer term development programme. So it could vary from maybe being like an induction day where yeah. I come in and they yeah. show me around and give me some tips and advice to more of like a, a couple of year programme where they take me through a programme over a period of time and keep revisiting it. Exactly that, exactly that. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then, so why why do people do it? Let's just understand that. Um, so there is a vast amount of research that shows that um, well-run onboarding programmes mm-hmm. are correlated with better retention rates um, and also greater speed to value. Um, speed to value? Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so it just essentially means that people join the organisation and um, are operating... Uh, value adding value adding yeah I like quicker, it <laughs> um, more, more from an earlier day yeah uh, earlier stage so yeah it's um, it's effective it has um, you know very high, high ROI for organisations um, and it kind of um, like lots of uh, psychology and behavioural science it's, it's just common sense if you help somebody to understand um, how something works and the skills that they need in order to thrive within an organisation um, they're much more likely to get off to a flying start um, rather than if you kind of bring them in on day one and then they have to figure out how to do um, everything mm. from themselves. I guess that's, that's probably increasingly important for the early careers audience because they are, I guess, younger and new uh, and therefore actually the onboarding process for them Absolutely. needs to be top-notch, otherwise you end up yeah. in a difficult Absolutely, difficult and I think one of the things that's interesting from last year's ISD development survey mm-hmm. um, is research that shows versus, um, I think it's sort of something like 49%, um, of graduates having had some work experience um, back in the late 90s. Um, now that figure's nearly half that. Uh, right, so I certainly have some um, good right work experience. <laughs> work experience before. 
I was just saying I had some. I had work experience. Yeah, yeah. I like it. You're in the 21%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, quite, quite a lot. I think. Or 49, depending on when you graduated. That's true. Best work experience anyone's ever had. I was a chambermaid. I worked in a hotel, and as a result, I think it's really important to leave hotel rooms tidy. So I, my husband thinks I'm mad, but I end up tidying hotel rooms. Yeah, that is. That's a habit, isn't it? Yeah, you have that yeah. ingrained. Uh, personally, I worked in Burton's menwear. Men- oh, menwear? right. I can, I can see you doing that, actually. Yeah. Year but 10. What work experience? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was woeful. All right. Uh, I hated it, yeah. I worked in a recruitment consultancy, and we had to send letters to people to see if they wanted to stay on the books. I sent about 500 letters with no stamps on, so everyone oh. had to pay 90p. Oh, yes. Yeah, that went down well. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so it's a bit of a disaster to be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, so, yeah, less people getting work experience like that. They could have done better onboarding, if anything. They need more support understanding, go. yeah, probably. <laughs> they need more support understanding simply the transition into the world of work. Um, and one of the things that we've um, discovered from research we've done, again, with kind of common sense, is if you're taking on board apprentices and school leavers, you should expect to need to invest more in helping them to assimilate into the world of work because they've had less experience of things like time management, prioritising. Um, so when we've done research with school leavers and apprentices, one mm-hmm. of the things, um, if they look back on um, joining an organisation, when they haven't been given support around what we might call self-management, so how to prioritise, how to manage their time, um, they they find that they struggle a lot more. Um, and that kind of makes sense because they haven't had that three or four year gap where they've actually yeah. had to start to learn how to manage themselves through through university. So is it typically more sort sort of soft skills, things that you don't learn in the classroom or you haven't learnt at school or through your education that you would be learning on an onboarding process? Yeah, so I think um, most organisations, um, increasingly organisations now, will invest in both um, technical or hard skill training um, and behavioural or soft skill training. Um, I think the ISC reported last year that um, on average graduates um, are given something like 19 days of technical training to 11 days of soft skill training. Per uh, year. Um, but what I would say is that we know, um, because we Development Beyond Learning specialises in, in behavioural and soft skills training, um, that it's by far and away the case that every organisation um, yet appreciates the value of soft skills training. Mm-hmm. So some of the clients we work with are really struggling to build the business case for that, despite the fact that it's very, very concretely there. Um, I mean, I think there was a study by Michigan University that showed that the um, ROI on investing on soft skill training is something like 253%. Um, and that um, there, there were studies like... Daniel Goldman, who is the expert on emotional intelligence, which mm-hmm. is a lot of soft skills obviously build to that, um, has shown that um, about 90% of um, successful progression up the ladder is as a result of emotional intelligence yeah. and soft skills like that, rather than IQ um, and technical skills. Right, like it. So I think you've got a lot of lots of good uh, um, <laughs> percentages there as to why I think the, the, just the importance of soft skills. Yeah. Um, and that links in, actually, we did some, a survey of uh, 15,000 reviews that were left on my apprenticeship last year. And out of the top six, um, like one of the questions was, what skills have you learned mm-hmm. um, or developed? And out of the top six, four of them were all soft skills. Yeah. Right, yeah. So whether that's communication or working with uh, customers, 
yeah. of confidence building, that's what one thing they all cited as the most important as in to what them. they would most like to learn. No, as in what they have, they learned. have learned. Yeah, yeah, from um, those that have been on the process. Oh, yeah. And so for them, actually, you know, they, they loved it. They thought yeah. that actually that was the one thing they not only learned that was new, but yeah. also developed on what yeah. they currently had. And that's, that lends to another sort of side um, of the business case for investing in soft skills training, especially for early career talent, is that we know that um, the people joining the workforce now, mm. they've lived through a lot of uncertainty. And despite all of the sort of uh, stats and suggestions that they're going to be um, very flighty about the jobs that they take, they're actually looking for security in the organisations that they join. Mm -hmm. you know, they're very aware of um, AI and what does that mean for their careers. Um, and they hugely prioritise organisations that invest in their learning and development. Yeah. Um, and so, especially in skills that are going to be um, future-proof, essentially help um, them no matter what the future of work holds. And one of the things that we know is that the skills which are most difficult for AI to replicate are the ones that are going to be most valuable in the future. Mm. And those are um, sort of soft skills, which range from anything from self-awareness, collaboration, networking, personal brand. Um, Great. So you basically we've realised the importance of yeah. soft skills, whether it's, uh, I guess, young people either citing it as something yeah. they develop loads, loads of stats on as to why there's business benefits. Yeah. Like you mentioned loads in terms of uh, retention and making sure people feel well onboarded. Yeah. So let's talk through all the reasons. So in fact, we've talked through the reasons. Uh, let's talk through all the examples of really good uh, onboarding. Yeah, let's yeah, what educate. Should include and Brilliant. how should you go about yeah. it? Great. Um, okay, so I guess the first thing I would say um, in terms of a really good onboarding process um, is to make it easy um, for your um, employees to, to learn what you want them to learn. Um, and I think a really important thing that's often overlooked is um, the cognitive load that um, new employees are under when they join an organisation. So one of the things we know from behavioural science and psychology is that people's uh, cognitive capacity is constrained. Um, there's only so much that we can pay yeah. attention to at any one time. And one of the things that I think can go wrong with onboarding programmes is when we expect people to be able to arrive on day one and just assimilate all of the information that's thrown at them. Right, it's too um, much. Yeah, too much in the short space of time. Um, Did anyone see that um, article the other day in the newspaper from the lady? Who she was a psychologist and she successfully argued her way out of a, a ticket for going in a bus lane in Chelmsford. No, I did not say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Intrigued. So, so yeah, there's this. Tra- so, yeah, yeah. So in Chelmsford, there's this tunnel that only buses can go through, but it's very easy to go through on your, in, in your car and you get fined for it. And there's been hundreds and hundreds of fines since they've had it up. And her argument was that there's too many things to take in oh. as you approach the, the bridge. Yeah. There's something like. I don't know, let's say it's 12 signs or something like that you have to take in. Right. And she said it's not possible for you to um, work your way through those and then realise what you've done until you've gone through the tunnel. <laughs> and that, that's cognitive overload, right? That's the same, yeah. And that's the same sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> for like maybe someone who comes into a business, they, they get all this they stuff and then they get speed and fine yeah. or they lose yeah. their job or whatever. Yeah. Whereas if they spaced out <laughs> over a longer period of time, they would be fine to do it that's what we're kind of saying right with this type of stuff I yeah absolutely yeah. I mean I guess that's a really nice um, <laughs> complicated example <laughs> really glad you said that we we're going to get a, a jingle for Jack's anecdotes I love so that one, maybe though, like, very uh, niche <laughs> I think you giggling with uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm trying to regain my composure. Um, another one is like if you just throw eyeballs at someone, there's only so many they can catch. Yeah, that um, is similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is 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 a similar one. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, look, people desperately want to do well when they join a new organisation. They want to be successful. They'll try their very best to take everything on board. Um, but you know, there is only so much that people can hold in their head at any one time. Um, and so in terms of what does that mean for good onboarding, one of the trends that we're increasingly seeing and working with our clients on is actually mm -hmm. to start doing some pre-induction. Pre so okay. um, that's also great from a kind of keep warm strategy, um, which can help reduce reneging. So this is between um, offer so and when they start? Exactly, between offer and when they start. You know, um, There's absolutely no reason not to, to, to run some kind of training or programme um, in between. Um, and that can work from a number of perspectives. One, it can make the employees feel, um, you know, like they, they're in touch. Um, they're more connected with the organisation. Mm -hmm. um, one of the key things that we know is people choose organisation. Research shows that one of the number one things they're looking for when they choose an organisation is whether they're going to belong. And so one right. of the reasons that people might renege actually is um, maybe not because they're getting better better offer somewhere else or something, it might be that they're, they're starting to worry about whether they're going to belong. Right, so being reached out to um, and made to feel um, that they're important could be a really, really important part. Yeah. Um, it also gives you the opportunity to get some of the onboarding, some of the training uh, done before they actually arrive. Um, and so they're not being so overloaded. So one of the things that we've done with a client recently was actually to run some training on presentation skills and networking before they arrive. So they mm -hmm. start day one understanding technically um, some, some skills for how to network well. Um, and actually they were having to do some really important presentations from quite early on in the um, in onboarding. Um, and they've been given the training ahead. Um, we touched on some of that stuff, didn't we, when we spoke with um, Tristram and Tom? Yeah, yeah. Where we were talking about rejections and renegs, yeah. and because that's kind of part of the onboarding. Well, it is part of the onboarding process, isn't it? Yeah. Where you've got to keep people warm before they before Absolutely. they start. So yeah. I think that's an important yeah. yeah, I like you talking about belonging. So yeah. EY have actually um, just launched almost like a new campaign actually around for their experienced hires yeah. around belonging at EY. Yeah. Right. Um, which is I think a great way of doing that to make sure yeah. people feel like. Yeah. Uh, is this really for me? Because yeah. you may not think that from the brand, for example. Absolutely. Um, what other uh, almost like tactics do you think? If you would you recommend for certainly for early careers, what would be good things to do? Sort of pre-induction that would be, yeah. What, what your, your top two things that you've seen top like they things. work really, really well. Yeah, and um, top two things are again prior to people starting would be running some kind of event, training, yeah. reaching out, getting in touch. Um, so making it up face to face and yeah it could make it face to face would be really nice and then you know especially if you are if an organization is worried about um making sure that people belong um and that can be particularly important for organizations that are trying to enhance their belonging uh sorry their diversity um you know are, are you thinking about um setting up mentors mentoring schemes um for for people as they join the organization and are you trying to make sure that they've got mentors um from the particularly um, particular diverse population that they come from. Right. Um, so one of the things that's talked about. So people it makes people feel like there's people like yeah, them in the organisation. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that people talk about is the diversity revolving door. Um, and so I'm very passionate. It's not what we're talking about today, but very passionate about diversity and inclusion and the real importance of inclusion for um, enhancing um, diversity and retaining diverse talent. Um, and one of the problems is that organisations who who really want to do the right thing around DNI. 
um, like investing lots of money in attracting the sort of talent that they need to improve the diversity of their organisation. But then if they don't create a culture of belonging, inclusion yeah. and psychological safety, those are exactly the people who are most likely to leave um, yeah. if they don't feel that they belong. So mental, um, you know, seeing people um, who, who, who are like them uh, can be really, really powerful. You cannot yeah. be what you cannot see is one of my favourite quotes. Cannot um, be what you cannot, you cannot see. Cannot be what you cannot see. Yeah. So making sure that there's visibility um, that they are um, somebody who belongs within that organisation is really important. Good because we spoke, in fact we spoke to Claire England yeah. um, in the Ethnicity Pay Gap podcast, yeah. and she spoke very similarly about yeah. the, the revolving door and how important it is to make sure you don't just attract but you yeah, you exactly. keep. Yeah. Which I guess why uh, yeah. onboarding is so important. Yeah, and it's kind of that thing of what gets measured gets done, and I think mm. the problem has been if your focus is trying to achieve um, targets and numbers and getting people in, then you will focus on who's coming through the door. But actually, that's only part of the story, and you know, you can't. It's no good if you've got a leaky bucket and you keep bringing people in. Yeah, right. Exactly the people that you spend probably the most amount of money and time trying to attract are the ones that are most likely to leave because you haven't got the other part of the equation quite yeah. right. Okay, so we met, I gave you sort of two. I said, "What are your two top tips?" And you gave me two. Yeah. If I asked you for three, would you give me another nine? One? Give us fourteen. <laughs> your top no, forty-seven. Didn't want to do a limit all your, uh, your your top tips. So. Um, I, no, I wouldn't they're, give you they're the best one. So we've got <laughs> the, the I can the, the pre-joining. <coughs> I'd give you another one. I'd give you another one in terms of reducing cognitive load. I'd give you several. Oh, um, which is sort of why I was uh, okay. know, initially talking about um, pre-induction. Um, so the other thing that I think is really important is thinking about how you structure the onboarding. Um, and perhaps it isn't all crammed into one day or several weeks. Right. Um, perhaps you think about distributing the learning over time. Um, so there's a lot of research that shows that people learn better um, when learning is distributed over time. Um, that can be linked to another thing that's really important, which is actually helping people to put what they've learned, um, say, in the classroom um, into practice back on the job. Um, so people talk about the importance of 70-20-10. Oh, yeah. Um, what is that? Can you run through that with I us? I can run through it. 70-20-10. Um, yeah. So it's model, is it? It's certainly not my model, no. I claim it's the Alice Scott model, though. No, no, no. So it's been around for, for quite a while. It was based on research. Whose um, model is it, then? Uh, I don't know. Claim it. Yeah, yeah, the Alice Scott model. Yeah, let's run through the Alice Scott model, shall we? There is some controversy around it, so I'm certainly... Okay, distancing yourself from it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, spotted that one. Um, But it's basically um, observation of how people really learn, and the idea is that they learn about 70% from from doing, from kind of assignments and tasks on the job, about 20% from coaching and feedback, so getting information about how they're doing, and only about 10%. Um, from actually being um, kind of in a formal learning environment, whether that's kind of in a classroom or online learning or, or so on. Right. Um, that's low, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's basically... School was a massive waste of time. It was. <laughs> <It's been> a, <laughs> yeah. like... um, you know, people need to put into practice what they learn, and if they don't, it just kind of can remain quite abstract. So one of yeah. the things that's really important for onboarding programmes is actually if they've learned something, how are you making sure that they're applying that back in the workplace? Um, and so distributing learning can mean that um, they get the, the kind of information, the skills and tools and techniques um, taught to them. But then are you doing something to actually make sure that they're um, transferring that learning into the workplace? 
And so something that we do with our clients is we um, run action learning programs, mm-hmm. which um, you actually get uh, the participants to put into practice what they've learned. So they get your kind of on-the-job homework, essentially. Okay. Um, and that leads into another thing that's very important in onboarding um, and the development programs from my perspective, which is manager involvement. So I think the more that somebody knows what they've been learning and then what the expectation is of them when they go back onto, onto the desk, and the more likely they are to actually be putting that into practice, both because there's just some accountability around it, but also um, people really care if somebody is invested in their development and knows what they should be doing. Um, and if a manager's more aware of that, then that's better. Yeah. So, so the idea there is um, once you've been through the process with somebody, you make sure that the person's manager is also aware of what they've been through so that they can yeah. encourage that, look for it, help absolutely. to do that over a longer period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And that, as I say, enhances accountability, but it also just signals the right message to, to the participants, either graduate or previous or school leaver. Um, people are constantly looking for cues in the environment that tell them how to behave. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, if they've gone on a training program and then they're back on the desk and nobody's asking them about it and nobody's checking in on whether they do yeah, it, right. you're inadvertently signalling to them how important that is. Whereas if they go back onto the desk and the manager says, oh, I know you've just been on a program about personal branding, how did you find it? What were some of the values that you think are really important to you? How yeah. can I support you? Um, you know, I'd like to give you feedback, then that suddenly triggers a very different recognition in the person about how much uh, importance is placed on the training that they've just been on. Yeah, so the almost investment in the managers to help the leaders and coaches yeah. is just as important. So how would you see it working between different types of early careers programmes? So I suppose there are probably similar techniques that are important whichever level you're at. Um, and one of the things I would say is really key is helping people um, to contextualise what they're learning and to understand mm. how that's going to be relevant in the workplace. So one of the things I think can go wrong um, in the classroom, whether how whatever percentage you're spending there, is if when you're being taught skills that are going to be useful back in the workplace, it, they're kept relatively abstract. So the more that you can use context and the more um, that context can be relevant to the specific setting that that individual is going to experience in their workplace, the easier it is for them to envisage how they would translate that skill back into their workplace. So I think that's possibly even more important if you're spending a lot of time operating in the abstract, you know, how can you support those individuals at sort of level two to understand how all their learning is going to be useful and relevant for them in the workplace that they're going into. Um, And so if that can be done on the programmes that they're learning, great. And if not, once again, what can you be doing the time that they're on the job to help them to actually understand how what they're learning, spending so much time in a classroom, is relevant and applicable back in the uh, in the workplace. Yeah, I suppose there's also going to be a focus as well with that sort of training on the technical stuff Absolutely. rather than the Absolutely. emotional in- intelligence. Yeah. Because you know you're paying your training provider to provide the the technical parts. So they need to be able to yeah. do these particular things, and that might not be part of the program. There was something that they spoke a lot about um, yeah. last week at the uh, ISE. Um, a friendship conference about pastoral care of, of apprenticeships and mm. becoming, you know, yeah. almost everyone spoke about that in every in every talk. It's a really yeah. important yeah. part of the process, I think, for, for employers. And I, I really think that comes back to what we were speaking about earlier about the understanding, you know, being empathetic and understanding the context that those individuals um, find themselves in. You know, they've come um, straight from, from a school environment, suddenly in a workplace, 
and they just may not have the experience of, of, of what it's like to work in a work environment, how, how to manage their time, um, how to prioritise. Um, and I kind of think of the way that we expect quite young talent to just be able to, to manage those sort of what we perceive to be basic skills of self-management as how we treat people when they become managers. Like we often just expect that they're going to be able to do it. We just expect right, that there yeah. are some skills that people innately have. And they really aren't. I mean, I think if you ask nearly anyone um, if they think their time management skills are as good as they could be, you know, people typically can always be better. So expecting that people can kind of just arrive from day one and don't need that support, I think, is, is wrong. Um, and again, the interviews that I've done with school leaders and apprentices that join organisations is exactly those kind of skills that they desperately wish that they were given at the beginning. Yeah, um, like, like you were saying earlier, Ollie. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they've kind of had to find their own way. Um, and one of the things is, you know, a great value of, of onboarding and early training is it helps people to set up good habits from day one. Habits are quite difficult to change once they're established. So by not empowering people with really good methodologies for some basic things like time management, you are basically allowing them to find the best approach that they can, and then the likelihood that they can overwrite that um, is, is, is reduced because it is hard to change our habits once they're ingrained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've, um, so let's think, we've got plenty of uh, employers listening as to think how they can, I guess, implement some of the ideas you've said today. Mm. Um, well, again, what, what, have you got any good examples of um, some companies you're working with maybe that are doing a really good job of on, onboarding students? And yeah, what, what sort of tactics are they using? And what you've mentioned, like time management training. Sure, Is yeah. that you know, a certain session? Are there any other sessions you think have been? Yeah, so um, obviously I think all of our clients are doing a fantastic job. <laughs> <laughs> so we can edit that out. <laughs> They're all wonderful and, and brilliant and very enlightened and informed. Um, so, I, I mean, one of the things that we do, um, we've spent a couple of years um, looking at the soft skills that we um, that research shows are going to be most useful for the future um, talent of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so we have um, things like what 18 of them. And okay. so they're things like self-awareness. So self-awareness um, is essentially having a very accurate understanding of your strengths, weaknesses, um, values, um, and skills. Um, and self-awareness is actually research by Cornell University has shown that it's incredibly correlated with um, senior executive success um, and I've been in organisations that talk about the fact that you know, um, self-awareness at the beginning might be less important but as you get more senior it becomes uh, even more important than kind of more technical, technical skills so helping people to be really emotionally intelligent and aware of, of their strengths and weaknesses is really important um, having a strong personal brand so there's some research that suggests that if you have a strong effective personal brand you can hope to earn between 10 and 25% more over the course of your career than somebody who doesn't spend wow. time in that. How, um, how does someone invest in their personal brand? Oh, I'm glad like, you asked. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just um, asking for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jeff Bezos describes personal brand as what people say about, yeah, I know. Not the right time for him, is it? <laughs> but he's right, because his personal brand at the moment is what people say about him when he's not in the room. 
Um, and that's essentially it. We all have a personal brand, whether we invest in it or not. And one of the things we talk to people about, again, self-awareness is really important when thinking about your personal brand. You might want to be seen as someone who's really reliable, timely, and conscientious. But if you're regularly late, don't uh, do the work that you promise that you're going to do. Uh, and not very considerate, then your brand mm -hmm. is not going to be um, what you want it to be. So the first uh, step of a, a personal brand is really um, understanding what you would like your brand to be. Mm. Um, it's important that it's authentic, so it's not useful to decide that you want to be um, known for being a first-class ice skater, if there's nothing yeah. <laughs> um, about you that's likely to achieve that. Um, so it is important that it's authentic, but of course you can correct features that you know might not be um, so desirable so if you are somebody who's often late and you don't want that to be um, you know part of your personal brand then you need to actually work quite hard to realign your behavior in line with your brand so the first step is like understanding the values um, that you want to be known for and the, mm -hmm. the sort of brand that you want to have then doing a pretty much an audit of how you're doing against that brand um, and making some an, uh, evaluation about behaviors that you need to change and then putting a plan in place in terms of how you're actually going to align your personal brand to your brand vision. Brand vision. So, <laughs> so I guess with all of these, so there's, you know, you mentioned 18 different ones. Yeah. So I guess that would depend slightly on the organisation. So you'd probably do some kind of requirements gathering for the particular yeah. organisation and then figure out the particular yeah. skills that they might need to yeah. build it for that particular organisation or even a particular yeah. particular to, role to a certain extent definitely and I think another if we're thinking about best practice um, onboarding one of the things uh, would be for an organisation to have a clear understanding of the skills gap within their organisation and the skills um, mm -hmm. that they want to ensure they have and it's interesting data from the IFC again the development survey last year um, showing that quite a low percentage I think it was in the 20% 20, uh, 20 of organisations think beyond two years of the skills that they need um, their kind of graduates to have. Right. Um, and so the more um, accurate you can be about the sorts of skills that help people to thrive within an organisation and then make sure that our um, training is supporting that, the better. Are there organisations that do have five or ten year development plans or is that not really heard of? Um, no, there will be organisations that do that. I suppose um, they, you know, they might be in the minority if the IC data is to be believed. Um, you know, <laughs> which, which I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, of, of course, we do. Um, you know, and obviously, it's hard to. You know, humans are not. You know, behavioural science and psychology will tell us humans aren't that great at, at looking, uh, predicting. Ahead. Ahead. We're, very, yeah. we're very present biased, um, and it's much easier to focus on um, what's important in the here and now. Um, so yes. That said, you know, organisations should definitely look at the skills that are important um, in their specific context, but there is research that suggests that there are certain skills um, that are correlated with, um, you know, career success, and um, they are a lot of the skills like self-awareness, social intelligence, collaboration, being able to thrive through change. Um, some of those skills are, are, are pretty important, whichever organisation that you're in. Nice. Which, can we list all those on the website? Yeah, we can. So yeah, people can come and uh, download them all. Yeah. Do you think there's um, a reason why employers don't necessarily always do a really thorough onboarding? It might be because some of these emotional intelligence-based skills are more difficult to measure. You can't necessarily pass a test and measure the level of someone's confidence or what have you. And they're more about how it makes somebody feel. 
and the effect that has. So if you feel really confident in yourself, well, that changes a lot of stuff in the way that you act and how you do stuff, which would obviously, I would imagine, be very positive for you and your role and for the organisation you work for. So do you think that's a yeah. reason why it's... Possibly. I think it's a, I think that's a very insightful observation. Um, of course, some of the softer skills are, you know, with, with clues in the name, can be a little bit harder to measure. Mm. Um, I think a lot of organisations um, might focus on how people feel after training rather than thinking about um, more robust measurements like how people's behaviour has actually changed. So it is possible to measure some of these softer skills um, yeah. uh, in terms of, from a sort of, the, there's a model of... Um, the Alice Scott model? Evaluation, yeah, the Alice Scott model, <laughs> also known as the Kirkpatrick model, um, which talk about level one to level two, level three, four, up through to kind of ROI of training programs quite a lot of people just look at how training made people feel mm -hmm. level three is has it changed the way that people actually behave um, and it is more onerous to measure whether people's behavior um, whether the learning is actually being applied in the workplace um, but you can do that but you can do it yeah, that's um, good. and one of the ways to do it again might be involving managers or 360 feedback um, so another you know top tip for kind of best practice on um, onboarding and development programs is to be as rigorous as you can be with the evaluation um, it can be really great to try and get baseline measures like how are your graduates performing when they arrive and then how do they perform as a result of the training that you've gone through mm -hmm. so one of the things that's fascinating again that's listed over the ISC research is the extent of the skills gap that employers yeah. perceive um, in the graduates that they, they bring on I think only like 48% or whatever believe that graduates have the skills that they, they right. need I think it's as low as 19% for, for, for something like self-awareness or resilience but um, if you've done an internship but if you've done an internship yeah goes through the roof probably 63% 63% well that's yeah, massive yeah. yeah so three times 300% so more effective yeah 300% right. <laughs> three times better <laughs> 48 to 63 is right. 300%. But no, I thought we were doing 20 to 60. Let's just clarify to <laughs> listeners that it's okay. higher. It's, okay, yeah. Another top tip, do an, in, do an yeah. intern programme before you're Yeah, well, that's the sort of try before you buy, isn't it? And the whole, oh. the whole reason why the internship programmes work so well is because you're already testing and almost filtering Absolutely. the right candidates for that role. And if they experience or show a lot of those good soft skills that you like, yeah. you're more likely to bring them back because exactly. they're a good fit and they, they exactly. work for you. And, you know, obviously you've invested time in, in, in training them and showing them the sorts of um, skills that are going to be valuable. So, again, you've distributed that learning to a certain extent. They're not starting on day one um, without any uh, any background in the organisation or in soft skills. Okay, How do we get there? I've, I've literally no idea. We were talking to you at 18, <laughs> weren't we? We were talking to so, so Yeah, so we got to... So, that, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm still trying to follow that math. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was from 20 to 60, all right? <laughs> um, so we've talked like lots of uh, ideas about what good onboarding looks like. Are there any things that bad onboarding looks like people should avoid Ooh. to do or are doing yeah. that they shouldn't really be doing or it doesn't make any sense or yeah. it's damaging even? So other than the... <laughs> yeah, well, fair. Yeah. No, no, that So I guess as well as the inverse of what we've already talked about, so obviously not overloading, not overloading people with information at the beginning, um, not having soft skills in training at all, mm -hmm. and not doing an analysis of, of what skills are going to be valuable for the organisation. 
some further examples of um, onboarding done badly. I'd probably put um, at the top of the list um, conveying the wrong acceptable behaviour, conveying the wrong culture mm-hmm. um, to new employees. Um, so one of the things um, we know from psychology and behavioural science is that humans are very, very sociable and they mm-hmm. care very much about what other people think about them. Yeah. Um, and they're constantly on the lookout for cues from the environment of how they should behave. Um, that's something called social norms. And there are two types of social norms. There's how we tell people that they should behave um, and how we actually behave. And people are more likely um, to take information from how they see other people behaving. So if an organisation, for instance, really values timeliness and professionalism, um, but the behaviour that a new employee, a graduate apprentice or school leaver might see are people turning up late because there was a great event uh, the night before, mm-hmm. um, or people not taking uh, training very seriously or not, not turning up on time for a meeting or not being respectful to other colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the challenge that that organisation has is that message is going to be really, really loud. So one of the things that can go wrong, we've worked with some organisations that have had to fight quite hard to correct um, uh, establishing the wrong culture early on with their graduates and what they've seen um, is some bad behaviour essentially starting to creep in. Um, And how do they correct that? How can you... you, The the best thing is to kind of course correct quite quickly and quite forcefully. Um, So literally just stating that that's not acceptable and then obviously um, needing to kind of hold the line so that the behaviour um, comes in line with um, the stated uh, norm, the descriptive norm of how people should really behave. Um, one of the things that we often find is really effective is if it comes from the business. So um, a lot of our best onboarding programmes will work very closely with senior stakeholders from the organisation who convey important messaging around why programmes are being invested in, why they're important, what, what skills and behaviours are expected from, from mm-hmm. new employees. Um, and I think that those same stakeholders can be really important if something is going wrong. Um, you know, it can go wrong if a new population thinks that it's okay to behave a certain way when they're on the induction programme and that's not being measured, but when they're on the desk, then they'll be really serious. Yeah, right. right. Over it's like this, 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 this distinction between what you're learning in training and what you're doing day to day on your job. They need yeah. to be joined up and Absolutely. related. This is what we were saying earlier about you know the line manager being involved yeah. in, in you know to encourage that day to day. So then these two need to be connected for it to work well, right? Exactly. And I think you know we've seen it sometimes with um, graduates on programs not understanding that they're responsible now for their own development, and so turning right. up to learning and development expecting to be kind of spoon fed. Um, actually being clear you're, you're an employee now and you're responsible for your own development and growth I think that can be really important to get that message across from quite early on mm-hmm. rather than making them feel like the onboarding is all about spoon feeding them you do want to transition them from where they've been before university or school um, and help them to assimilate successfully into the working world yeah. but given that they are ultimately going to be responsible for their own development their own success their own growth um, then making that message clear quite early on, I think, can be really important. Okay, so um, we've gone through loads of different bits and pieces here. So we know that um, you know we should do it over a longer period of time where possible. Um, the onboarding should include both technical but also emotional in- intelligence, and we know there's lots of evidence to back up the the benefits of doing that. If that's the case, um, why is it that some 
organizations still just try to do it into a very short um, window or they just do the technical training and then they avoid the emotional intelligence. Why do you think that is? So I suppose there's probably a couple of reasons. Um, if you imagine positive intent, it might be that the organization only has so much resource and so much budget. Um, ultimately, um, it's essential that somebody joining an organisation understands technically what they need to do for them to be able to do their job. And I think a lot of organisations can see the soft skills training as a nice to have. Um, and clearly, if budgets um, and resources are restricted, they have to prioritise the thing that's absolutely essential. I think that is how some organisations see it. Um, I think in other organisations, they maybe don't yet perceive the business case um, uh, despite the fact that it's pretty loud and clear for the benefit of soft skills training um, and I think that's where I think that's where there's a, a real problem and a real disconnect um, we've spoken to you know I've come across organizations who have the very positive intent of having you know best in class um, uh, development programs and best in class inductions and wanting to use them as part of their EVP and their attraction EVP um, employee value propositions as part of their attraction um, strategy yeah um, but then aren't prepared to put the, the money and the investment behind the soft skills training right and I think I think it's really really important if your organisation is and can only invest in um, technical skills, that's fine. But then you need to be realistic about um, what, what you're communicating um, about your brand. And it is that as an organisation, you're very happy to invest in what absolutely has to be done. But you're not able or prepared to invest in a lot of the skills that have been shown to be incredibly important for people's future success. And a lot of the skills that are shown to be the ones that um, you know new employees we call millennials, Gen X, Y, Z, etc. Yeah. Care about the most. So, yeah. what do you do if you're in the situation whereby um, you've got the you've got an onboarding process, you've got the technical part, and you can see the value of the, and you want to build a business case for the other yeah. parts? Where do you go to build that case to um, get together the information and, and intelligence? Because it it's a case I've built quite often for some of our clients. So, mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, I, I've. When I've had when I've helped um, some of our organisations to build that business case, I have turned to resources like the ISC Development Survey, showing the skills gap, highlighting how um, certain skills that are perceived to be very important are just missing mm -hmm. um, in uh, early career talent, um, and that uh, you know if you want to have those skills um, in your organisation, you need to invest in them being developed. Um, turn to surveys like PwC that shows what millennial and, and kind of early career talent of today care about and they care hugely like one of their number one the number one benefit that they value is learning and development and that is linked also to the fact that they care most about being given skills that are going to future proof their careers and you just start to build a really strong case for if you want them to have these skills you need to invest in them and if you want them to be attracted to your organization you need to be investing in, in these sorts of mm. um, is it hard because it's newer i.e. companies haven't had like the structure for it before or budget for it before. Is it new us? Sort of part of the question, really. Or is it always it comes to like millennials or Gen Z actually see it, value it more? So it's becoming more of a focus. Right? Yeah. How is it? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, because it's newer, there might not be an existing budget. Like we wouldn't be having a conversation around should should there be some, although some organisations don't. I was talking to an organisation recently who hasn't, typically invested in induction as a thing before so for right. some organizations the whole thing might be new um but for a lot of organizations yes they've invested in technical training before 
they are not having to make a business case for technical training. They mm -hmm. are having to make a yeah. business case for behavioural skills. And, you know, if you are talking to people who have not had it themselves, you know, they might be going, well, I'm fine. Why do I need, yeah. you know? So, of course, it is difficult to convince someone about something that they've not, they may not have perceived a need for before. Yeah. Is there anything that we've um, not asked you yet that we yes. should have asked you? Great question. Um, so I suppose you've asked about g g examples of good onboarding. Um, there's a couple of kind of, from a behavioural science perspective, like ninja tactics <laughs> okay. that um, I really love. Um, so there's a very cool um, phenomenon um, in behavior that's been observed. Behavioural science is essentially the science of how people behave versus how we think they behave, and it's very evidence-based. Um, and there's something called the Ikea effect, um, which I love. Right. Um, it basically <laughs> does what it says on the tin, which describes that people are more um, uh, engaged with something that they have feel they've been invested in building themselves. Okay. So there's right, really gotcha. amazing research yeah. that somebody is less likely to want to sell um, a piece of furniture that they've part built, like in a Ikea yeah, yeah. bit of yeah. furniture, than if it's something that they just own, which makes sense as soon as we've invested time in something, we're more committed to it, we right. value it more highly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, something that um, organize, some organisations are starting to do is actually involve their graduates um, in the development of their graduate programme. So I think the um, latest ISC um, publication, mm -hmm. um, Accenture was actually talking about doing that yeah. um, as one of their strategies. Right, cool. Um, and that's really, really smart. It, it is, yeah. is utilising the IKEA effect. Um, and it also links into other principles around people really valuing um, having some autonomy. So actually having some some direction and some claim over how their programme might be going. So it might be that you design the first part of the programme and then about halfway through sit down with them um, look at some data you have around how they're doing and then actually ask them like what would you like um, to, to be receiving more training on and then they're going to be a lot more invested because they've partly designed the programme themselves. So that's a really nice idea. Yeah, it makes I sense. I like it. Yeah. Um, Are we allowed to name brands though? I mean, in the, in the podcast, the idea yeah. effects, and then you have to call that some sort of <laughs> Swedish <laughs> flat pack <laughs> company. <laughs> I'll let you uh, work with your lawyers on that one. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll come back on that one. <laughs> so that was positive. the first one. <laughs> um, and another one is the power of commitment. So getting people, probably a better known one, getting people to commit to things, they're much more likely to then stick to it. Um, so one of my favourite studies was, and which I think is really just useful skill to know in life or useful fact to know in life. If you are on a beach and you want to leave your bag there, or the same applies for on a train, mm -hmm. um, and you are hoping that somebody nearby is going to protect it if you pop to the bathroom or something, oh, yeah. um, they it's significantly more likely, I think something like 90% more likely to be protected if you ask someone, would you mind just watching this for me? Right. Um, then if you don't, essentially if you don't ask anyone, people just kind of think, oh well. But if someone said to you, yes, I'm going to watch your bag, and then somebody comes along, so in the experiment they got a stooge to come along and like try and steal the bag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if some people are committed to doing that, then they were much more likely to actually jump up and stop the baddie running off with the bag. Um, so quite a random example, yeah. but in terms of um, onboarding, you know, how can you get um, participants to commit to the changes that you want them to make? And I think this comes back to you know the difference between good and bad. Bad onboarding is like we need to do something because we need to be seen to do something. There needs to be a day or a week or an event because mm -hmm. there always has been. Good onboarding is what are the changes that we want to make 
um, what are the objectives for, for our onboarding around you know, retention, but also around the sorts of skills and behaviours we want to see back in the workplace from this population. Um, and then actually, how do you make sure that they, that, that they start to behave in the way that you, you want them to, that that training actually transfers into the workplace? And one of the things is to get them to, to commit to, to behaving differently, um, which can be done kind of at the end of the programme, you know, saying it out loud. You could get them to be in, um, you know, to commit to, to a, a part of here within the group or commit to their manager that they're going to do something differently. They're going to invest in their personal brand. They're going to um, seek more feedback, um, mm. whatever it might be, actually getting people to say it out loud and commit to an action they're much more likely to do it. Yeah, and then hold them, I guess, accountable to it. So Absolutely. do your 360 yeah. feedback afterwards yeah. to make yeah. sure that... Yeah, which is all linked to the fact that we don't like to be seen as um, unreliable. So if we say we're going to do something, we like to be seen as somebody... Consistency who's... bias. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah. Like it. <laughs> okay, great. Well, um, thank you very much for coming along today. Thank um, you for having me. It's lots been really of, good fun. Yeah, lots of stuff. And if anyone wants to find out more uh, about what Alice and her organisation does, please visit developmentbeyondlearning.com. I've been Jack. Uh, and I've been Ollie. And that's been the Jack and Ollie Show. Went, went silent, didn't we? <laughs> no one did some sort of random, random stuff. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> for that. I was disappointed about the lack of karaoke. <laughs> for all things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed, we'll help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show.